Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder. A podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like the climate crisis, tax havens, or neopopulism. Discuss how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder, and where we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective global governance that could, maybe, just maybe, ultimately help us find a semblance of order. And this week, we're taking a look at climate change, This is a perfect example of an issue which can only be solved through collective action, but where this is simply not happening fast enough or effectively enough to meet the scale of the challenge. And as this problem grows, it starts to feel for many of us like it's unfixable. And it's quite easy for people to begin to give up hope. So in this episode, we're gonna look at exactly why collective action on this issue is so hard and why there are even some countries and some individuals who are actively working against effective global action on climate change, even though they would also stand to benefit from those actions. Okay, so Jason, this week, the topic is that small issue, climate change. Yeah, I don't really hear much about it. There haven't been like wildfires or um, no, no, nothing. 40 degrees in Greece and, you know, swarms of evil jellyfish stinging me off the Monegasque coast. And it's obviously a super easy thing to fix because all the countries in the world, and particularly all the drivers, are willing to forego their conveniences because everyone just wants to get on top of this. It's kind of a miracle that we haven't solved it yet. Yeah. Joking aside, the reality is that although the climate crisis might seem very dissimilar to the war in Ukraine or the implosion of the Libyan state, I think the climate crisis is a quintessential microcosm of the global enduring disorder. A, it comes about through a collective action failure. B, it's a negative feedback loop. And C, it's fed by everyone putting their short-term individual or state interests ahead of long-term collective goals. 
So as a collective action challenge, we know that certain individuals will gain from continuing emissions, but we will all lose in the future. Absolutely. That's the issue. Can humanity compromise enough to make it to the next millennium? Or are we bound to miss the forest for the trees unless the crisis becomes acute? I think humanity is really good when we deal with acute crises. Like, look at the response to this Ukraine war. Look at the response to the pandemic. It's human nature to not respond to chronic threats the way that we respond to acute threats. And I am worried because sometimes when human nature plays into a crisis like this, people don't get that sense of urgency. It's like the limp. And, and sadly, I'm suffering from one myself now that if you just keep limping like this, your knee will never recover and it will be an existential crisis. It just doesn't seem that because it's so chronic. Just before we get on to the topic, I need to explain poor Jason's injury. He had a horrible skiing accident and tore his ACL. And the point he's making there is that what was an acute injury because of a whole series of bad advice from different doctors has become a chronic injury. And that's what we're dealing with with climate change. It's a chronic problem. I think another problem is that some of the worst effects of climate change are taking place in other parts of the world from the worst emitters. So I have a personal interest in this, as I think you know, which is that my youngest son was born in the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the Marshall Islands on current trajectories will actually disappear. And so that has created a much more immediate understanding for me. The really, really frightening statistic on why this matters is that according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the upcoming decade is absolutely crucial and that decisions we take in the next few years will affect the history of our planet for thousands of years to come. And they have advised that global emissions need to come down by 43% by 2030 in even that is not really enough to reverse the damaging effects of climate change so far. But that is just to give you an, a sense of the scale of the problem. I feel like you need to be a bit of a visionary and a bit of a pie-in-the-sky idealist if you want to talk about the realities of this problem. If you're too much of a pragmatist, then you're just doing the day-to-day -day diplomacy of it, Alex, which you, of course, have done, and you're never going to solve the problem. You know, that it's like a Martin Luther King kind of thing. If Martin Luther King was just like, well, the problem is segregation is so entrenched in this way and this way, we just have to deal with desegregating water fountains. I can't even imagine civil rights legislation. That's too big. We never would have gotten there. We got there because Martin Luther King was a dreamer, but he also had a huge amount of rhetorical capacity to pull the nation with him and elicit major legislators like Lyndon Baines Johnson. So I think we need the Martin Luther King of the climate change, and that's not going to be Greta Thunberg. It's going to be someone who has a established career behind them and is in their mid-40s or 50s and has the degree of networks and political capital as well as the ability to paint a vision. Yes, Jason, you're absolutely right. Of course we need visionary leaders to try and mobilize the world and mobilize popular opinion and have people feel there are solutions and we can work together to overcome them. 
But I also have to say another huge problem is how do we get countries like China or Russia who are currently exploiting the climate crisis for their own national security to see that it's a real threat to them. It's not an opportunity, it's a threat. And if we ever get to a point where they do want to tackle it, then we're going to have to work with them and understand their needs and concerns as well as our own. That's it, Alex. We have to learn to play nicely with our adversaries when it comes to the climate crisis. So we have to create win-win compromises that don't just reflect current geopolitical realities, but reflect our shared interests. Yeah, so I have an analogy that I've always had in the back of my mind, which is a reference to the Game of Thrones. For those of you who, like me, absolutely love that series, you will know that it involved all these kingdoms who were fighting to gain control of Westeros, but at a pivotal moment, they realized they were all collectively facing a bigger threat from the White Walkers, the evil beings from beyond the wall. And winter was going to destroy them all unless they defeated the White Walkers. In our case with climate change, summer is coming. Our planet is warming and we need to work together to defeat that before we can continue with our own petty squabbles on planet Earth. But I digress. Jason, why don't you introduce our first guest? Yes, our first guest is my friend, Arthur Snell, who's going to be a close friend of the podcast, who, in fact, we're going to be hearing more and more from over the coming months. He'll occasionally co-host when Alex is away. Fascinatingly, he's become somewhat of an expert on the geopolitics of climate change. He's going to help us understand how the global balance of power impacts how we deal with climate change, but then also how that very balance of power is being affected and changed by climate change itself. Perhaps the biggest change of all, and one that it, it seems to me I don't feel we hear enough about, is the polar ice cap, and I'm talking the Arctic ice cap. So when I was growing up in the 1980s, there was a huge lump of ice at the top of the world about the size of Australia. And right now it is about a third of that size. A um, third and, of the size yes. of what it was yes. in the 1980s. Yes, yes. That's astonishing. It is astonishing. And that piece of ice has been there for about 20,000 years, probably. And within two decades, it's quite possible that in summer, there will be no ice. There will be just open sea. So whilst this isn't dry land in the sort of conventional sense, this is a major feature of planet Earth that is going to disappear. So here's another way of looking at it. There are polar bears being born at the moment that in their lifetime, will see the end of the Arctic ice cap. And the Arctic ice cap is, is their habitat. That massive bit of the world will cease to be. And they can't be moved like people. No, indeed. But if we think about it, because that's the sort of the ecological side of it, but the geopolitics of it is rather fascinating because if you think of a globe, the shortest way from Europe to Asia by sea is over the top of the North Pole. And so the Arctic Ocean, once it becomes a place that you can navigate in normal shipping, not with special icebreakers or whatever, it becomes a strategically highly significant stretch of water. And then this is where you get this geopolitical sort of jostling, which is already happening for the Arctic space. So Russia has a huge Arctic coastline. Canada and North America, Alaska, the United States, also very significant. Greenland becomes hugely significant. It, I'm fascinated by the realisation, as someone who, perhaps unsurprisingly, I wasn't a big fan of Donald Trump, 
that actually purchasing Greenland, which everyone thought was a big joke, pretty smart idea. It's a hugely significant bit of strategic real estate there in, in the high Arctic. And so what you have at the moment is in this Arctic space, particularly Russia, to some extent Canada, uh, there's a sort of jostling for position. Countries are drawing lines on maps saying, well, this is our continental shelf. There's a bit of underwater mountain that Russia says is belongs to Russia. You could say, well, that it doesn't really mean anything, but it would certainly mean something if it became one of the most important global commercial shipping routes, which is really likely in all of our lifetimes. What about natural resources? Does the Arctic have natural resources that could be exploited as well? Absolutely. And, and again, um, <laughs> this is turning into the improbable case study of Arthur talking about the genius of Donald Trump. The other thing that makes Greenland interesting is that it, it has a lot of the rare earth minerals that are absolutely crucial in the post-hydrocarbon global economy. And Greenland has an interesting status. It is part of the Kingdom of Denmark, but it's an autonomous region. It has its own independence movement. It's a vast territory which has historically been basically largely uninhabitable because of its own ice cap, but that's changing again with the climate crisis. In previous years, the Greenland domestic politics has had various interesting sort of flirtations with China. We haven't talked about China yet. China is not an Arctic nation, but it is increasingly portraying itself as one. China has built an icebreaker fleet. It started various scientific exploration missions. And I think it has an increasingly sort of hungry attitude towards the Arctic space. There were there have been intriguing cases of China wanting to open up large mines in Greenland. There was another case of a of a rather inexplicable project to create a huge tourism project in Iceland, which looked didn't really look like it had any validity as a commercial proposition, but would have given China a, a strategic foothold in Iceland, which of course is, you know, part of the sort of Northwest European kind of security structure. So we have a lot of these complexities around the mineral wealth of the Arctic, the navigation importance of the Arctic, but have also, of course, just the strategic significance that for Russia, it, you know, Russia's rather strange geography is such that it is either its Arctic fleet or its Black Sea fleet that gives it its sort of access to the wider world. So in both cases, particularly in, in the Arctic, you've seen Russia has been building up and kind of renewing a lot of its military installations up there in the high Arctic. Arthur, you've sketched a great game for the Arctic and other winners and losers of the climate change aspect. To keep it fun, I want to put in a, an escape route, shall we say, for our audience. They've got to watch Borgen, and particularly the fourth season, which is the Borgen Greenland season. The Chinese conglomerate, using some Russian oligarchs, buys access to an oil concession through a Canadian company on the west coast of Greenland. Really well done, very gamified, hits you with a little bit of Greenland culture. And these are things which are likely to happen, right? Greenland is in the crosshairs of where Russia, China, the EU, and the US are going to be competing for resources. How do we head that off? How do we insulate the predictable fissure points of the mid-21st century geopolitics? It's a really good question. And I think, you know, one of the things that you see in Borgen is this tension between the, the politicians in Greenland 
and those in Copenhagen who inevitably, even when they try not to be, are seen as colonialist, as patronising, as sort of talking down to this sort of remote territory. That pushes up this issue of Greenland independence, which again, until I started educating myself about it, I had no idea about, but that there is a very powerful and well-organised push for Greenland to be an independent country. And of course, it is nowhere near Denmark. And particularly there, then you have a country which is in mineral resources and geographic resources, immense. It's a huge, huge territory, a tiny population, clearly very vulnerable, very open to exploitation, whether by China, North America, who knows who. So how, but you know, your question was, how do we deal with this? I mean, I think it would seem to me in the wider interests of those of us seeking a less disordered world, that it would be good if Greenland were not independent, that it enjoyed a productive and settled relationship with Denmark, because Denmark is an important NATO member state, you know, very, very close relations with the United States. And as we know, there are US military facilities on Greenland, which have been there for more than half a century now. So that that is one aspect, but that's rather specific to Greenland. I think there are wider questions about this issue of the mineral resources, which I touched on earlier, which are really going to become crucial in, in this post-hydrocarbon world. There's this concept, which I'm, I'm sure people are familiar with, of friend-shoring, which is that increasingly countries understand that they need to be reliant on allies for key resources. Because as we learned during the COVID pandemic, you don't want to find yourself facing, for example, an acute health crisis and be reliant on a country with whom you have a rather complicated relationship for basic medical supplies. And so similarly, we don't want to be reliant on China for our rare earth minerals if we're unfortunately heading into a period of considerable competition and perhaps worse with China. So identifying other sources of these key resources and therefore creating robust structures around them, I think is is a key. And and that really takes us back to how we should interact with Greenland. But of course, this sounds like I'm just treating Greenland as a big pile of, you know, mineral resources for outsiders to exploit. As you mentioned in the Borgen show, which I think was really well done, you know, one had that sense of the risks of that. As a non-Brit, I see a positive role for Britain that most, I think, post-Brexit sane thinking Remainers have come to feel that the global Britain agenda can't be implemented and, and, and is, you know, fanciful and delusional. Britain, I see it is in a unique place because it has a web of post-imperial relationships, EU relationships, relationships with major energy producers in the Gulf. And yet it has an advantage that America doesn't have because it's not the top table global hegemon. And of course, I say that there are some advantages of hegemonic power, but there are some times when it's advantageous to be not a threat when you're trying to convene. How do you see maybe in 10 years time, a British government being the primary convener on the climate file globally? This is something that, you know, I'm really proud of of Britain's potential role in the world. And I'm eager to be here in London and to be a part of things. I see it as more likely than America doing this role. Do you know what I mean? Britain having the conference, working with Scandinavian allies, getting on board some private sector people, some Danish solar panel companies, 
and trying to hash out something that works for the British economy, but works for all of the partner countries. Is that pie in the sky or is that a way that uh, Britain can find a new role in the world that is positive and that leverages being outside of the EU? I mean, it's not pie in the sky in some regards. I mean, Boris Johnson, the master of the um, pithy phrase, talked about Britain as the Saudi Arabia of wind. That makes him a true windbag. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And I've spoken up for Donald Trump. I'm now speaking up for Boris Johnson. So this this is real. This Arthur, is... you're going to praise Liz Trust. Yeah, exactly. I'm, uh, that... The disorder makes strange bedfellows. It does. It does indeed. But I guess the, there is a point there that countries like Britain, and I, I wouldn't say Britain's unique in this, but countries like Britain with global reach, but with a little bit of agility that comes with not being a huge country like America or China, they can perhaps make a virtue of certain things. So the fact that we're a very windy place, why not lead the world in, in that way? And, and of course, it's not about the impact on emissions at a global level, because we're still not a big enough country for it to matter that much. But it's about what that brings in terms of innovation, in terms of examples, in terms of, as Jason describes, creating alliances and so on. I actually think that the, the dash for net zero is an important one, because if, if a major industrial country actually sets itself a stretch target of getting there a bit earlier and then actually does it, really does it, not by exporting carbon to some other place in the world, but by actually innovating. I think, again, that is going to be very powerful because I, in the end, if there is any optimistic version of this issue, it, it does come through innovation. We're going to take a short break now, but afterwards we're going to be discussing does COP actually help solve the climate crisis? Imagine being the first person to ever send a payment over the internet. New things can be scary, and crypto is no different. It's new, but like the internet, it's also revolutionary. Making your first crypto trade feels easy with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PVI, DBA, Kraken. Visit PVI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. I think the U.K. is uniquely positioned here because it has this web of post-imperial connections. It has the English language and skilled diplomats who can crafting these cleverly worded inclusive communiques. But then it has one thing that the U.S. and Canada and Australia will never have. It has a bipartisan approach to climate change. You have Tory conservationists who are not that different than the Labour or Lib Dems on this issue. And then the U.K. has credentials, particularly in the last years, as a center-right player in the global conversation. So is this something you are excited about? Can Britain really be making global Britain and making this a post-Brexit issue of green energy, green industries, and, and helping coordinate the climate crisis? Yeah, I think so. And I really hope so as well. I think it's the kind of issue where the UK, if it really put its mind to it, could be an incredibly effective actor. But I think it would really require our government to be willing to work with the opposition and decide, you know what, we are really, really going to apply our collective will to this. 
we are going to work a little bit like the John Major government and the Tony Blair government continued the work on the peace process in Ireland. They sort of coordinated and worked together and have a collective approach to it. I would love to see the UK do that. I would love to see the UK transcend the political divisions of the last few years and really engage on something that could serve the planet. And I think it would totally revitalise us. And while the UK could play an important role in solving the climate crisis, it's not like British policymakers can do it on their own. Yes, Britain can punch above its weight, but only by leveraging its convening power. And to do that, we have conferences like the COP, which is an annual meeting of countries to hash out solutions to climate change. The question that I always wonder, whether it's the Paris Accords or the COP or the Kyoto Protocol, do these conferences, do these treaties have any teeth? And Jason, you say you remain skeptical about these efforts, and you're not alone in that. Greta Thunberg herself has described these international conventions as talking shops, blah, blah, blah. We're going to hear an interview I did with a journalist, Fiona Harvey, who is environment editor at The Guardian, who actually I found offered a little bit more hope on our ability to tackle this. She gave me a terrific interview explaining how the COP process has been working and why she thinks it still is the right platform for tackling climate change and has actually been making some progress. Maybe not as fast as we need, but certainly better than I thought. First of all, many of the criticisms of COPs are absolutely valid. Uh, You know, they don't achieve enough. They are talking shops. They can be badly managed and they are labyrinthine in their complexity. All of these things are absolutely true. However, it's wrong to say that they don't achieve anything. And it's wrong to think that we can solve the climate crisis without them. They are really the only international forum that we have that is in any way effective. And they have produced things like the Paris Agreement, which is the only global treaty that actually requires countries to really do something about uh, the climate crisis. And so if you look back at the history of COPs, they have made a great deal of difference. When I was attending my first COPs nearly 20 years ago, we were headed for about six degrees of warming which would be really unthinkable. Our planet would be completely uninhabitable at that rate. When we got to the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, that would reduce warming to about three degrees above pre-industrial levels. Still a planet that would be uninhabitable, but a lot less bad than it was. By the time of the last COP, if all of the pledges made there were fulfilled, we'd be looking at warming of just under two degrees of probably about 1.7 to 1.8 degrees. Again, that's not nearly enough to meet the stretching goal of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But as you can see, it's an awful lot of progress uh, in the last 20 years. We won't be able to solve the climate crisis through COPs alone, but I don't think it's likely that we'll solve the climate crisis without COPs. So what are the prospects for COP28? It's going to be the most difficult COP ever, really. We are still failing to do enough about the climate crisis. We are still increasing our greenhouse gas emissions when they need to be coming down rapidly. 
at a global level. That means every COP is harder than the last and more urgent than the last. This COP is particularly challenging because it's taking place in a major oil-producing country in the United Arab Emirates. And the man who is going to be president of this next COP, COP28, he is Sultan Al-Jaber, who is the head of the national oil company for UAE. And so some people are saying, well, how can you be head of an oil company and head of a COP? Which is a reasonable question. Yeah, it is. Although, I guess to play devil's advocate, could it be a way to try and bring the oil and gas industry more into the debate and put the pressure on them? I mean, do you think he will be a spoiler behind the scenes or the fact that there will be all these countries, all these observers, all this evidence brought about the impact of fossil fuels that actually even he representing his country and his country's interests will have to move and maybe he can help broker a deal? Or do you feel that's too naive and Pollyanna-ish? No, I think it's a really interesting and difficult situation. I've met Sultan Al-Jaber. He certainly talks a very good game. Uh, He's very much on top of the issues. He recognises what needs to be done with the oil industry. He says that the UAE is running towards a renewable energy future and that they will celebrate the last barrel of oil that's extracted. So, you know, he's saying all the right things. Of course, it's really impossible to say until we actually have the call whether he's made a success of it or not. On the plus side, as well as being head of the UAE National Oil Company, he also helped to find the Mazdar company in UAE, which is a massive investor in renewable energy. Um, oh, so he so has interesting. that entrepreneurial role as well and that experience. So he's coming at this from two angles in a way. He's also very determined to bring a business-like focus to this COP. When I interviewed him, he told me that he wanted to have basically a, a business plan for the climate with KPIs, key performance indicators for countries to check that we're getting to net zero. That kind of language is utterly foreign to any COPs, given that he is ahead of this COP, what's happened is that most diplomats in other countries have decided, right, well, we're going to make a positive thing of this. We're going to work with him. We're going to take him at his word, take UAE at their word, and make sure that this conference does deliver, that there's no backsliding from any countries, that there's no backroom deals that don't deliver for the climate. And most of all, keep the big emitters on board. 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the G20. And they are the crucial countries here. And really, I think the focus needs to be on China, the US, and some of those other big countries, India, Russia, that we haven't necessarily heard enough from. Can I move on a a little bit to talk about what needs to happen, both around COPs or other organizations or before COPs to try and make the COPs themselves more successful. What do you think can be done? Two things, really. Firstly, to enhance trust and cooperation between the rich developed nations and the smaller countries or the vulnerable countries. 
And then secondly, what can we do to put more pressure on the back markers, the back sliders, the obstructionists at these conferences? I think to put more pressure on the back sliders, I think, first of all, we need to very strongly say who they are and what they're doing. Name and shame. Yeah, to name and shame them and to make it clear that at this stage in the climate crisis, there really can be no more delay and people who try to delay are working against the interests of the poorest people on the planet. Now, the Marshall Islands plays an outsized role in climate diplomacy compared to the size of it and the number of people who live there. And it's absolutely right that they should because they are on the front line of the climate crisis. That's why COPs are so vitally important. These countries which are on the front line, which are small, which are overlooked in other international forums, those countries come to COPs and they have an equal say uh, with the biggest countries and the biggest emitters. And these countries are the ones with the moral authority and they wield it to devastating effect. What about the role of other institutions? Is there a role for the G20 or the World Bank or the World Trade Organization? Or do we need another institution? There are really important roles for all of our existing institutions. I don't think there's time to get more institutions to develop an entirely new institution. I think that's just pie in the sky because we need to work with what we've got at this stage. This is the crucial decade. So something very important that came out of COP27 in Egypt was this very strong impetus for reform at the World Bank, along with the IMF, which also is is going to play more of a role in the climate crisis. But we need a lot more money from the private sector as well. And governments need to really become more muscular in intervening in the private sector to help the climate. Because if you look at what's happened, we saw some of the highest profits ever for fossil fuel companies. They had an absolute bonanza. Now, that should not be happening at this stage of a climate crisis caused by fossil fuels. They should not be making money hand over fist. So what can you do about that? Well, governments need to intervene. So, you know, there's a lot more to be done on bringing fossil fuel companies into line. You need to change the incentives. I mean, sort of the polluter pays. So couldn't they take the lead and see which way the wind's blowing, as it were. You would think that fossil fuel companies, if they had any sense, would be investing a great deal of money in renewable energy. But they clearly don't. Um, They still invest in fossil fuel extraction, even though we know from the International Energy Agency that if we carry on with new development of fossil fuels, we will bust right through that 1.5 degree limit. So you'd have to ask the chief executives of those companies why they are taking the world to hell. And of course, they have very effective political lobbyists. Yeah, but have they no children? Yeah, I know. But I'm absolutely gobstruck by how often I read in the papers an article saying this ludicrous goal for net zero and it's just going to harm our economy and even though the evidence is so overwhelming there is still a really powerful rearguard action 
And for some politicians, they get a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. This is a really dangerous dynamic, and it's this culture war dynamic. And I've been saying for nearly 20 years that it's absolutely essential that we do not make climate change a left-right issue. And I'm afraid that's what's happening. Because if you identify it with a certain sort of political, tribal identity, then you lose all reason and you lose all connection to the science. Unfortunately, the physics and chemistry uh, of the world are not amenable to politics. Was there ever a moment where you had a kind of inner wobble and thought, we're just not going to get there? Or have you managed to retain that (laughs) sense of hope? Yeah. (laughs) Writing about climate change is a sort of constant roller coaster between optimism and despair really people ask me what i do and i say i write about the end of the world but the thing is that it's within our power to solve and that's the most important thing here we can stop doing the bad things that cause the problem and we can start doing the good things that solve the problem there's nothing that we need to bring down greenhouse gas emissions in the short term that hasn't already been invented We just need to start using the stuff. And the thing about using them is it doesn't mean hardship because actually living on a more habitable planet is actually living on a nicer planet. It's somewhere where you can breathe the air, where you can drink the water and bathe Uh, in the water. It's a world where nature thrives and actually life can be a lot easier. Now we get to the fun part, Jason, which is about how we order the disorder. And I want to draw on the two analogies we heard about the Game of Thrones and Borgen. At the moment, powers around the world are approaching it as if they are actors in Borgen, all competing with each other, all looking for advantage, no one willing to compromise unless somebody else does first. But we need to get to the Game of Thrones scenario where we put aside our bilateral rivalries and cooperate together to defeat the bigger threat, the White Walkers, or in this case, climate change. Summer is coming, and if we don't act together, we're all going to be fried together. It's really like the famous Bedouin proverb. (laughs) Famous proverb? Tell me. Oh, I think it's pretty famous. Okay. My brother and I against my cousin. Oh, yeah. My cousin and I against the outsider. And- We've just unfortunately been fracturing and fracturing and we're fighting our brothers and we're fighting our cousins and our brother is working with us against our cousin, but we're actually all in this together. When are we going to snap out of it? I have hope for the new generation and the young are going to understand that they're in it together. The problem is that right now, the not young and the not global elites have fallen into the trap that the right-wing neopopulists have made for them that Fiona warned us about, which is don't let climate change become a culture war issue. There's absolutely no reason it should be a culture war issue. Keep in mind that Ronald Reagan was the first one to really get serious on climate change. And he is St. Ronald to all these right-wing Republicans. And Thatcher and others worked together to cure this ozone problem. But stupidly having to do with the internet and neopopulism, In the U.S. and in the U.K., the right wing has weaponized 
the climate change issue, is a gateway drug for all conspiracy theories. As soon as <laughs> yeah. you're like, well, it's not getting warmer. We, you know, we look at the tree records. The, the liberals are all making it up. Then you might as well just say that there are Jewish space lasers and that that's the reason why there are all the wildfires. It's clearly the Jewish space lasers. <laughs> okay. Gosh, we're ranging quite wildly in this episode, space lasers. So I agree with you about the culture issue. However, I'm a little bit more optimistic that it's not going to work, particularly in the UK. There's been some quite interesting polling suggesting that support for the Tories has actually gone down following their attempts to weaponize climate change. I think voters are wising up to this. And also, even in the States, we've had horrific wildfires, we've had horrific tornadoes, we've had horrific hurricanes and floods. I'm not 100% sure that today's populist leaders are going to get away with weaponizing it. But they are going to try to do so. I think another problem we have with climate change, and I want to pick up your point about maybe the future vision comes from young people. I don't think young people are so wedded to the nation state concept. They are more connected globally and internationally. But the forums for discussing climate change are based on nation states meeting together and nation states making commitments. And nation states acting in that forum they're calculating their national interest because they are representing their national government. So forums like the COP, it becomes, you know, will Russia agree? Will China agree? So I think that's a problem, that the forums are our traditional 19th and 20th century intergovernmental forums. But this actually needs to be driven by young people and communities demanding action. But the young people need to convince their nation states to do things at these forums, because right now, yes. power lies with the nation state. We and need to break that down. That's the point. Of, of course. And that's why I mean, I'm a believer in something like a NATO for climate change and a NATO for tax havens. And that's at the very essence of what the Disorder podcast is about, creating new institutional vehicles to deal with 21st century problems and vesting them with sovereignty. I don't see that happening in the short term. We've got these huge economies, huge emitters like China or India, where this whole middle class is going to want to have petrol burning cars. However, they're going to have to realize that taking action is in their interest too, because they have not just smog in their cities, but the planet is uh, their planet. That for me is going to take time. And then we are going to have a class of leaders supported by a demographic base of, you know, millennials and Gen Zers who want to delegate power to supranational institutions. Okay, agreed on that. And I would also add, which came up a bit in this episode, is we have to be able to give people some hope. There is a way to tackle climate change. It doesn't mean an end to all modern conveniences. It in fact, it should improve the quality of our life. I mean, look at the debate that's been happening in the UK over sewage in our beaches. It's absolutely revolting. And I think we need to offer hope that tackling climate change, A, is not going to destroy our economy. B, there are jobs in green energy. 
and C, it will improve our quality of life. It will make our world a better place to live in. There's an open goal here. Obama said we could have a, you know, a greens job, new deal, a green deal. And of course we could have done. There's no reason why the U.S. shouldn't be the world's leading manufacturer of wind turbines and solar panels. This is just, I would say it's almost a no brainer. The wind blows, the sun shines and money is to be made here. Are we going to let the Chinese and the Danes be the ones to dominate the green industry? I mean, come on. That to me is the positive note. It's like, here's the kick in the rear end to do it. We're America and Britain, after all. We invented the energy industry. I love that. You're going to get the last word this week, Jason. We can do it. As Angela Merkel said, wir schaffen das. We can do it. We need the leaders to do it. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you too want to live in an orderly world, follow the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can also find us on social media. It's at Disorder Show. Finally, if you want to learn more about anything we discussed today, visit our show notes. First thanks go to our producer, George McDonough, then our executive producer at Goalhanger, Neil Fern, my former program manager, Zena Starbuck, and Guy Fiends. To all who've participated, you too have helped order the disorder. We wish you all a very orderly week. Bye.